Hello, and welcome to Brocadium. My name is Brenna Goresco-McTiernan, there's a hyphen in there, and I'm your host for this podcast as I discuss with you my own experiences with the profound, mysterious, and uh, unusual, and delve into some of these subjects of interest and research I've looked into in attempts to understand and quantify these experiences a little bit better. Um, ultimately, it is not my intention to convert, convince, or offend anybody with this podcast. Um, the experiences I'm sharing with you are of a personal nature, and the research I've looked into, I've done so in depth, but as a layman out of personal intrigue and interest. If you are also interested in these subjects, please use the information I'm putting forward as a jumping board for your own research to make your own conclusions and decisions. It is imperative to be a critical thinker. It's very, very important. As always, I want to give a huge shout of gratitude to Hilary Zozula for the beautiful art she made for this podcast. She's an incredibly talented illustrator who excels in realms of symbolism and mythology. If you would like to check out her work, support her as an artist, or commission a piece of your own, you can find her at Hilary Zozula on Instagram, Z-O-Z-U-L-A. As always, a little bit of background into who I am and why I have the kind of unique mindset that I do. Um, I'm not a doctor or scientist, guys. I've said that before. My degrees are in English and history, but I was raised by scientists, a chemist and molecular biologist, and a biologist and gene therapist. So I have a very deep respect and reverence for science, research, and the empirical method. I also was brought up with a very unique spiritual upbringing. So instead of adhering to one singular faith or religion, I was exposed to spiritual practices, religions, and myths from around the world. My mother really spearheaded these studies as I was growing up, and she did so for two reasons. The first was that uh, so that my siblings and myself would be able to see that there were a lot of similarities, these quote-unquote germs of truth that were woven throughout and shared between many of these different belief systems. She also did this ultimately so that we, her children, would be able to choose for ourselves what made sense to us as spiritual creatures. To date, I incorporate elements from a multitude of different faiths in my personal philosophy, including, but not limited to, uh, aspects of mysticism, shamanism, Gnosticism, and paganism. Today, I am going to be discussing with you elements of light, the mystic experience and commonalities to it, and the near-death experience. Light is an extremely pervasive element that is found uh, referenced and revered throughout spiritual practices from around the world. Being that human beings require light, especially from the light of our sun, for food production, hunting, and biological functions, it's really no surprise that light holds an important context throughout our human history. However, in a spiritual or religious context, this light is often described accompanied by feelings of joy, ecstasy, or bliss. 
A rundown of these concepts used by some of the major religions followed throughout our world is the light of lights or bliss in Hinduism, the brilliance and nirvana found in Buddhism, the primal joy and divine light noted in Sikhism. In Islam, it is referred to as the rapture or supreme radiance. In Judaism, the joy of joys and the splendor. And in Christianity, this is referenced as ecstasy and divine light. The occurrence of light in context of the mystical as well as the near-death experience has been referenced and recorded throughout our history. The Tibetan Book of Dead, published in the 8th century Common Era, makes reference to a clear, pure light seen upon death. Plato's Myth of Ur, a legend which concludes Plato's Republic, includes accounts of the cosmos and afterlife and makes reference to a brilliant pure light as well. Venerable Beatty, an 8th century English monk, recounted the tale of a man who claimed he had died and saw a light, quote, greater than the brightness of daylight or the sun's rays at noon, end quote. And even Emanuel Swedenborg, the 18th century Swedish scientist, claimed that the soul continued to exist after death from an experience he had and described a, quote, lord of lights, which permeates the hereafter, a light of ineffable brightness, end quote. My first experience with this type of light and joy or ecstasy occurred in the spring of 2007, but was rooted in events that took place in the summer of 2006. It's worthy to note that up until about 2006, um, I was a very strict agnostic, and I actually had a pretty strong dislike for organized religion and the term quote-unquote God. In learning so many different faiths, religions, myths, and history growing up, I had really seen how the term God and different organized religions in multiple contexts were used for the justification of the destruction, condemnation, and decimations of peoples and cultures throughout the ages. This history made me very uncomfortable. It didn't sit well with me. In the summer of 2006, I lost a very close friend very unexpectedly. Being that I didn't adhere to any one specific faith, there wasn't really a framework I could fall back on in processing this grief that I was going through. And it spun me into a pretty profound esoteric crisis where I was questioning the nature of reality and the meaning of life at large. I worked through this depression um, with therapy, writing, reading, meditation, reflection, and the amazing support of friends and family. Sidebar, mental health, guys, is super important. Please, if you need help, reach out. There are resources and you are not alone. Continuing on. I came out of this depression um, after months of working through it. Uh, lucky enough to graduate college with honors, but by the skin of my teeth, being that I have been in such emotional and kind of esoteric distress. Um, while I was able to work through some of my depression and get to the root of my grief, um, I didn't really have any better understanding about, you know, the, the purpose or mysteries of life at large. But with an occurrence in a random weekday night in the spring of 2007, I became a mystic believer. 
I was living with roommates at the time, and uh, one of my roommates had had some of his close friends over to play board games. So I was hanging out with them a little bit into the evening, and after spending a few hours with them, it was getting close to midnight, and I was ready to go to bed. As I was walking up to bed, um, I remember having this experience of feeling really grateful that this group of friends had each other. Knowing that I wasn't really an intimate part of their group, I was still really happy that they loved each other and supported one another and cared for one another. It felt really beautiful and you know, I was reflecting on that as I was going to bed. I walked into the bathroom to go wash up for bed, turned on the light, you know, splashed my face up in the sink. And when I splashed my face up and stood up and looked in the mirror, everything got really, really bright. It was like somebody had turned up a dimmer switch on existence. And coupling with this extremely bright light, um, there was a presence. And it was an emotional presence. And the emotion was waves of overwhelming love and forgiveness and compassion. Um, it was so intense, it really just kind of brought me to the ground. I ended up falling on the bath mat. Um, I didn't know what was happening, and I felt extremely humbled. And whatever this presence, emotion was, um, spoke to me. And it said, I'm here. I'm always here. And you are always loved and always forgiven. You must know that. And I sat there on the rug for a while until, honestly, my roommate came in and was like, oh, my God, are you okay? And I was like, I don't even know what just happened. And I walked to the bedroom and I, I sat on the edge of my bed and I was overwhelmed with gratitude for this experience, um, which I couldn't explain. But from that point forward, I have been filled with the certainty that there is in fact profound elements to our reality beyond what we perceive in normal day-to-day -day life. And these experiences are perhaps what the fellow seers and seekers throughout our ages have referenced firsthand. Mysticism, based on the Greek word mystiko, refers to an initiate into concealed mysteries. This individual um, has a goal of pursuing and achieving communion with, identity with, or conscious awareness of ultimate reality, divine spiritual truth, or quote-unquote God through direct experience, intuition, and insight. To the mystic, these experiences serve as an elemental and important source of gaining knowledge, understanding, and wisdom. Mystic traditions often adhere to the belief in a existence beyond empirical perception or the belief that, quote, true human perception of the world and existence transcends logical reasoning or intellectual comprehension. A common thread of mysticism is that the mystic practitioner and all of reality are in fact one. The purpose of mystical practices, including but not limited to meditation, yoga, prayer, chanting, trance, ceremony, is to achieve this oneness to transcend limited identity and to re-identify with the all that is. This state of oneness has many names depending on the mystical system. It has been referred to as birth of spirit, 
third eye awakening, the kingdom of heaven, illumination, union, reintegration, self-realization, nirvana, samadhi, or gnosis, to name a few. Mystic experiences are defined similarly across culture and spiritual belief systems and often involve a dissolving of self, perceived interconnection with all existence, feelings of profound peace, joy, and are often coupled with a serene, loving connection with ultimate reality. Kabbalah is a mystical tradition in Judaism, Sufism in Islam, and Gnosticism in Christianity. According to some scholars, Christianity itself was a mystic offshoot of Judaism. Eastern philosophies may consider mysticism redundant. However, in non-traditional knowledge and practices being considered in esotericism, Buddhism's Vajrayana, a tantric practice, and Hinduism's Vendata, a practice of liberation and gaining knowledge, may be considered mystical traditions themselves. Many shamanic practices from around the world mirror elements with uh, practices to achieve ecstasy, illumination, and knowledge. These elements are found woven throughout indigenous cultures throughout Siberia, Alaska, Africa, as well as the North and South Americas. Classically, mysticism refers to a direct experience or even union with, quote, God. But God, as we know, or divinity, does not mean the same thing for every person in every culture. God may be personal or impersonal. It may develop from inside or outside an individual. And the concept itself may be singular or contain multitudes. While mysticism is often identified in a religious context, William James, father of U.S. psychology, and Ken Wilbur, an American writer and philosopher, stated that the mystical experience may happen to anyone at any time, regardless of religious training or inclination. Any individual, regardless of spiritual inclination, delving into these areas of illumination, union, and gaining knowledge from realities beyond normal perception may be called a mystic. According to Walter Penke, minister and psychiatrist, and William Richards, a theologian and psychologist, there are nine shared aspects to a mystical experience. These include unity and oneness, transcendence of space and time, deeply felt positive mood, a sense of sacredness, noetic quality or intuitive illumination, paradoxicality, ineffability, transiency, and a persisting after effect of the occurrence. All nine of these traits are shared with elements found in the near-death experience. Dr. Raymond Moody, a philosopher, psychologist, and physician, coined the term near-death experience in his 1975 book titled Life After Life, in which he interviewed 150 individuals who had experienced the near-death phenomena. Throughout his interviews, Moody claimed there seemed to be extremely similar characteristics present in the near-death experience, and these included, but are not limited to, the perception of a strange sound in chimes or bells, a sense of peace and painlessness, an out-of-body experience, perceiving a tunnel, encountering people or spirits of light or a supreme being of light, a life review, and a reluctance to return to the physical body. According to a Gallup poll, approximately 3% of the United States population has in fact experienced a near-death experience. 
And while the near-death experience may be interpreted retrospectively in a religious or spiritual context, the core elements of the experience remain the same across religious or spiritual inclination or cultural practices. Scientific explanations of the near-death phenomena include temporal lobe issues, especially in the electroencephalographic activity in the right temporal lobe, which is associated with learning and remembering nonverbal information, visuospatial material, and music. Included in these studies was an analysis of near-death experiencers' sleep patterns, specifically the shorter duration of sleep and delayed REM sleep relative to a control group that was studied. These studies seem to suggest that perhaps altered temporal lobe functioning plays a factor in so much the individuals who have experienced the near-death experience may be physiologically distinct from the general population. Other scientific explanations for the phenomena include hypoxia or anoxia, which is a decreased oxygen or complete lack of oxygen to the brain, although oxygen deficiency usually results in chaotic hallucinations associated with confusion and memory loss, not typical for the near-death experience. Additional explanations would include medications that may have, may have been administered to the dying patient, although many painkillers tend to elicit hallucinations which are disturbing, nonsensical, and tend to fade over time. Again, unlike the near-death phenomena, which tend to be comforting, more or less logical, and incredibly vivid. People's near-death accounts stay consistent for years, even decades after the occurrence, whereas normal memories tend to waver and fade. Another possible explanation for the phenomena could be the production of naturally occurring hormones and chemicals in the body at the time of death. A paper titled DMT Models, The Near-Death Experience was published by a team of United Kingdom researchers associated with the Psychedelic Research Group at Imperial College London and aimed to study the similarities between psychedelic experiences common to DMT and the experiences of the near-death phenomena. While similarities were found and discussed, the paper presented no conclusions and did not determine if there was in fact a production of DMT in the brain at the time of death. Seemingly, for every aspect of the near-death experiences, there are at least one scientific explanation. However, for every scientific explanation, there appears to be many more near-death experiences that defy it. Melvin Morse, a pediatrician at Seattle's Children's Hospital in Washington State published a paper titled Near-Death Experiences of Children in 1994, in which he studied the experiences of hundreds of children as well as adults who had had the near-death experience while they were young. He concluded in his studies that elements of the near-death experience were similar across culture and regardless of age, saying, quote, our study suggests that there is a core near-death experience, which is inexorably intertwined with the process of dying. It involves a sensation of being dead yet conscious, separating from the physical body, hearing or seeing events surrounding the physical body, entering into darkness, entering into a tunnel or staircase or sidewalk, seeing relatives and comforting images, including pets and living teachers, entering into a loving light, and often perceiving a decision to return to the body. It was independent of medications, hypoxia, hypercopria, psychological stress, or the perception that one was dying." End quote. 
He continues on to say, quote, there's no evidence that these experiences represent pathology or dysfunction. They can be easily distinguished from schizophrenia hallucinations. Near-death experiences are predominantly positive and lack the paranoid ideations, distortions of reality, negative imagery, olfactory elements, and aggressive or hostile elements of drug-induced hallucinations and other transient psychoses, end quote. Frederick Hawke, a professor of religious studies at Cleveland State University, published a paper in 1978 comparing the experiences of the near-death experience and mystical religious experiences. This comparison was further studied by Bruce Grayson, a professor of psychiatric medicine at the University of Virginia Division of Perceptual Studies, in which he did research into comparing the responses on a mystical scale of 292 near-death experiencers and 34 persons who came close to death without death and without the near-death experience. Two-thirds of the near-death experiencers reported a mystical experience with their brush with death compared with none of the comparison survivors. Some of the elements that the survivors claimed to have had endorsed noetic qualities to the experience, a positive lasting effect, a sense of unity, loss of ego, and aspects of timelessness and spacelessness. However, Bryson said that, quote, the depth of the near-death experience was correlated highly on a mysticism scale. But factor analysis of features during the brush with death yielded two distinct factors, representing mystical and near-death elements, suggesting that the near-death experiences have commonalities with, but can indeed be differentiated from, mystical experiences, end quote. Overall, while the mystical experience and the near-death experience share many similar features, but can be differentiated from one another. Ultimately, it is noteworthy to say that the both experiences overall have a transformative impact on the individual who goes through the phenomena, and it is predominantly a positive one. And leaving you with two quotes, one on mysticism and one on death and dying. Evelyn Underhill was a 20th century English author and practitioner in mysticism and said of mystic and the mystic experience, quote, we cannot promise that you shall see what we have seen. For here, each man must adventure for himself, but we defy you to stigmatize our experiences as impossible or invalid, end quote. Edwin, Edward Rickenbacker, a World War I flying ace, after being severely injured in a civilian plane crash, said of death, quote, You may have heard that dying is unpleasant, but don't you believe it? Dying is the sweetest, tenderest, and most sensuous sensation I have ever experienced. Death comes disguised as a sympathetic friend. It is easy to die. You have to fight to live, end quote. If you'd like to look into any of these uh, aspects of mysticism or the near-death phenomena for yourself, I referenced information that I found in a Psychology Today post by Steven Tyler titled Near-Death Experiences and DMT, a book by Evelyn Underhill titled Mysticism, a publication by Willoughby Britton titled The Near-Death Experience and the Temporal Lobe, a piper by Bruce Grayson titled The Congruence Between Near-Death and Mystical Experiences, Divine Encounters by Brian Bain, and the article titled 
Near-Death Experiences and Children by Melvin Morse. Next week, next episode, which I hope to have up sooner rather than later. I'm sorry for the lag and uptake. Things have obviously been very intense <laughs> throughout our worlds this last few months and weeks with pandemics and a long overdue civil uprising. I'm going to be talking to you a little bit about divination, psychic abilities, remote viewing, and the studies that have been done at the Institute for Noetic Sciences. Thanks for joining, guys. Please stay safe out there. <laughs>